Welcome to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today's guest is Paul Higgins. He's the owner of Emergent Future. He's a writer, a speaker, and consultant. This is Technotopia. So we're sitting with Paul Higgins. He's the owner of Emergent Futures. He's a speaker, he's a writer, uh, and a futurist. So, Paul, what do we have to look forward to uh, in the next few years? Why don't you talk a little bit about what you've been researching and, uh, and some of the things that you've found over the, uh, over the past few months in terms of uh, medicine, robotics, etc.? Oh, I think we're uh, in, a, in an area of uh, unprecedented sort of and rapid change and I think there's all sorts of uh, possibilities for that. So if we look at, say, for example, the future of healthcare, I think there are some huge uh, capacities and possibilities around things like augmented expert systems for uh, medical professionals uh, where you know, the human plus the artificial intelligence is much better than the human or the artificial intelligence by themselves. And there's there's a heap of benefits there for patients. I also think that the you know the if we can get around some of the issues around silos and data sharing and privacy, etc., there's a huge amount of value to be gained from uh, big data and the sharing of data and the learning by robotic systems in in the health systems as well. So. I'm largely optimistic about what that looks like. I think on the ground, people um, need to be a bit prepared for uh, rapid change. A lot of people we see are pretty much sort of uh, fatigued out by some of these things, and I keep saying to people, you know, strap your strap yourself in, lock in the seatbelt, because <laughs> it's only going to get faster. So that's an interesting question. So you're so what you said, and this was this came up. Um, I saw something on this recently. So if all things, if everything was legal, what major, uh, what major breakthrough would we be able to see in the next few years? Uh, you mentioned something about uh, information silos and privacy. What if, what if everything was open? What if we could do experimentation of all sorts uh, within the bounds of, I guess, morality? But, uh, but in terms of uh, in terms of the the legislation that's that's holding these things back what do you think uh, what do you think is is happening there uh in some ways it's a little bit difficult to answer that question because i think uh you don't sort of understand until all that comes together and you start looking i think we're moving into this age where uh use of artificial intelligence and data can be extremely powerful in making connections and uh, seeing patterns that humans aren't capable of doing and that that can augment you know, what humans are great at doing. And so if we take an example, uh, I, I spoke uh, last year at a radiology conference on the future of technology and health mm-hmm. and there's an example there of uh, uh, a robotic surgical system that can operate because it has no metal parts uh, can do a prostate operation inside an MRI machine Hmm. now that's not necessarily that um, that's sort of happening already but the possibilities of 
tracking all of the patients that are actually treated in such a way and the system augmented by technology learning in real time uh, by tracking patients' histories, their future, their prognosis, what happens you know, six months, 12 months down the track. And that's almost being a sort of cloud-based artificial intelligence learning system that learns in real time. That means you know, if, uh, if someone needs an operation today, that operation may be slightly different tomorrow because of what's been learnt in the previous 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So that sort of uh, uh, rapid improvement by sharing all of that information about those systems all around the world and tracking every single patient that goes through them which isn't possible at a human scale, but is possible at an AI scale. I think that, you know, that's an example of the sort of things I'm talking about. Hmm. Okay. So the so the in terms of uh, in terms of the future of health specifically, you were doing some work with uh, the Red Cross and, and a few other uh, organizations. Yeah, the, I just uh, completed a small project with the Red Cross Blood Service here, and you know it's an extremely complex and difficult thing to start thinking about uh, they were talking about HR and their their future workforce etc mm-hmm. and they work in a fairly uh, technical uh, and complex space and so it takes quite a while for someone an individual to get up to speed and understand all the complexity of what's going on so there's a, a long time frame in terms of talent development recruitment etc so we were largely working around the HR issues and if you start mapping that against things like, will we have artificial red blood cells? Will we have artificial blood so we don't need to collect blood anymore? What will happen with tissue you know, banks and donors and a whole range of issues like that? It's extremely hard to try and figure out how do you do your recruitment and your talent uh, sort of channel over 10 years when you don't necessarily know what three years away looks like. And so mm-hmm. we were trying to sort of work around some of those things and get the the HR team starting to think more broadly than just their their specific role because they had to think more broadly about where the organization was going as a whole. Okay. So we try to stay optimistic on here, but you, you mentioned a little bit about uh, robotics and you had, uh, you had some concerns about robotics and control of robotics? Uh, not necessarily control, but I, I think that you know, there's a really interesting stuff going on and a big debate going on between the... Uh, people that think technology will continue along a path of creating more jobs and and better prosperity, and those that think a combination of AI and, ro- AI and robotics may end up, you know, back to that sort of Luddite prophecy of eliminating more jobs than it creates. I wrote a piece at one stage and sent it to my father, and it was entitled, you know, the Luddites are finally right. <laughs> and he quite gently pointed out to me that the Luddites were right the first time. Um, and that their jobs were eliminated, it was just other jobs were created. And so I think uh, there's some real possibilities that we could be moving into a an area of uh, structural unemployment, either as a large proportion of our total communities in the developed world or uh, as a large percentage of a significant subset of those communities. You know, this sort of theory of hollowing out the middle that we'll end up with uh, very well-paid, high-end cognitive jobs and very low-paid manual jobs and nothing much in the middle. So mm-hmm. my, the jury's out with that. What, I, what I'm saying to clients is you need to think through what those multiple scenarios might look like and where you sit 
you know, depending on which happens and start thinking about them. So, for example, I think there's going to be a lot more competition for people that have uh, higher-end cognitive skills around design and innovation and collaboration and storytelling and IT and a whole range of things like that. There's going to be a lot more jobs of that, and I don't think we're making that many more people that can do those sort of jobs at that level. Um, I'm certainly not capable of doing some of those jobs. Um, And so I think there's going to be a much more aggressive uh, fight for that talent, et cetera, no matter which of those scenarios ends up being true. So how do we get how do we get ahead of that? How do we get ahead of the the possibility that we're going to all going to be replaced by robots? Uh, well, if, if you assume that that scenario is true, and mm-hmm. I, I my, I'm sort of in the middle somewhere, really on the sort of spectrum, I guess, then we need to start sort of exploring. Well, what does work really mean? And you know these issues of, that have been um, promoted. Uh, recently, particularly around Europe, etc., but also going to be trialled in Canada shortly of you know universal basic income. Mm-hmm. If only twenty-five or thirty percent of us are working, what do the rest of the people do? Um, you know, should the people who are working is rewarded, or is it a system that rewards the whole of society? Um, I'm a bit fond of quoting some of Ian Banks's, you know, the culture novels, the science fiction stuff yeah. about. You know, he's gone beyond the point where anybody needs to work because AI is capable of doing everything, but a significant percentage of people still choose to work. Um, so I think it's all tied up in around that sort of, you know, work is central to our societies and how they work, and I think we need to rethink that if we're moving down that path. And I'm not 100% sure we are, but I think it's a significantly plausible scenario. Hmm. Okay. So what does uh, what does a city... Uh, like Paris or New York or Sydney, uh, what do they look like in twenty years? What what do they what what does the population look like, and 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 what are the people doing? That's a uh, that's a big question. Yeah. Uh, um, we break it down into sort of various areas. I think that first of all, if you talk about say transport systems, I think they look like completely autonomous vehicles. I think in 25 years' time, would be crazy not to have that system. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of uh, governments or not-for-profit organisations or wherever it may sit, um, owning that as a public transport system rather than individuals having their own autonomous vehicles. Now, I don't think you can impose that directly, but I'm a big fan of the proposal that for example, in Melbourne where I live, that the government should just go, we're going to buy 100,000 autonomous vehicles and we're going to allow them to be individual small businesses, each of them, mm-hmm. and but that will be run by an artificial intelligence system that is programmed solely to replace itself. So it's not meant to make, you know, super profits or anything like that. It, prov- it provides a base in the marketplace that says here's a replacement system at the lowest cost level that can be a public transport system mm-hmm. for everyone. And the reason I bring that up beyond that is that that changes the landscape, the physical landscape of cities themselves because if you do something like that and you no longer need significant levels or you can get to zero levels of parking, yep. then uh, you know it frees up buildings, it frees up streets, uh, it changes the urban landscape and 
you know, I've got a couple of councils I've been doing some stuff for I've spoken to in recent weeks. They sort of say, oh, you know, that's a long way away. It's not really, you know, that important to us right now. And I say, yeah, but if you're talking about planning and investment and roads and buildings now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're still going to be functioning in that environment. So you've got to start thinking about what that design looks like. Um, in my view, I think those sort of changes will continue to reinforce uh, the the move to urbanisation. Uh, I mean, Australia. I don't, I don't know what you think of Australia from over there, but you know the the sort of mythical sort of view of Australia is this sort of outback, rugged, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. If you look at the UN stats, uh, Australia is the most urbanised country on the planet. Okay. We're actually number one. <laughs> Uh, we've got a lot of area, but not many people live in the sort of gaps in between. So I think generally we'll see a, an increased level of growth of those cities and urbanisation, but I think that a change in communication and, and work and transport systems can finally move us towards a more sort of decentralised, you know, non-central business district sort of set up where cities are more designed around how people want to live rather than how people want to work. Hmm. So the so the focus on working in cities would go away and would be more of a more of a place to. I mean, you don't really think of cities as as livable anymore. That's not that's not a concept. But I think I think what you're saying is that they they go back to livability. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think we can have a lot more sort of biking, walking, open space stuff freed up by the transport things. Mm-hmm. I think that you know in that we're talking about twenty twenty five year time frames. Sure. Virtual reality is going to significantly improve our capacity to telecommute and work together without traveling. Um, I think the use of autonomous vehicles properly designed can, you know, they can be a workspace where we work and travel at the same time. And so it restructures how all those things work. If we go on top of that, if we sort of lay a sort of social and demographic change on top of that, obviously unless things change significantly in some of those developed areas, we're, we're looking at a much older age profile um, across those countries and across those cities as well. So that changes the nature of how we might want urban um, design to be. Okay. But if we, I'll, be, I'll be 79 then if you're talking about 25 <laughs> years. Uh, and there's a much larger cohort, you know, if you look at, you know, yeah, look at particularly the age profiles of developing countries and you know, places like Japan, etc. We're going to have a, a much older population unless we significantly change uh, probably immigration policies because I don't see that uh, the social forces which have reduced fertility are going to uh, be reversed anytime soon. Okay. So in a, I guess a few final questions, I think, what would you wager... Um, What's what's more likely to happen uh, in our lifetime, a, a, a ecological catastrophe or ecological solution? Like a solution to our ecological problems. I like uh, I like the concept of betting because it sort of yep. gets you being percentages on things, etc. Um, I, I think we're much more likely to see an ecological catastrophe. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> okay. The you know. This is sort of scaremongering a little bit, but sure. you know, that recent that recent set of data on carbon levels and temperature spikes in February around the world, mm-hmm. and that sort of uh, you know the the risks, I guess, of of more extreme weather events across a whole range of areas, um, I think is 
is one of the, the core risks that could, um, you know, because of systems as opposed to linear processes, could end up sort of surprising us, you know, in the a lot earlier than we thought. Okay. And I know, you know, that there's a big political debate in America about climate change and its reality, etc. But at the same time, the U.S. military sees, you know, climate change as the one of the biggest security risks in the in the world over the next decade. So there's, you know, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd bow down on the side of that. On the other side, I'm very optimistic about where we're heading in terms of renewable energy mm-hmm. and the the advances which are being made in terms of the cost structures of both solar and wind. Um, and I think we'll actually we're actually going to see a revolution in renewable energy driven purely by market economics rather than trying to do the right thing. I mean, the, the improvements in solar costs and battery costs in terms of storage over the last 20 years has been a, a fantastic story and we're just on the verge now, I think, of it being uh, highly economical. You're seeing quite you know, low solar contracts written in the US from those large-scale solar arrays, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're, we're about to see a massive shift in terms of the way energy is used in the next 20 years. More on the, uh, more on the, same, in the same vein... Um... Do you would you wager that you will be going into a into a so would you wager that you're going to be working in the same way that you're working now or what do you think is going to be changing in terms of the way you work and the way uh, folks get cash and get money? Uh, if I had to wager that, uh, um, yeah. Things will change. I think particularly virtual reality is going to make a significant difference to that. I think AI and robotics are going to make a significant difference. I mean, uh, McKinsey's has released that preliminary stuff from that project they're doing looking at workflows and processes and the effects of technology. And now the quote from that was, I'm not this quite right, but they're saying that more than 60% of current jobs could have more than 30% of their processes replaced right now. So I think all those sort of things in terms of workflows, et cetera, are going to change quite dramatically. Um, if I had to bet, I, I think we're moving towards a, a completely different economy in terms of work, in terms of that hollowing out of the middle. I think we're going to see a significant level of underemployment or unemployment driven by that. I'm hopeful that, you know, and those are the sort of things that breed revolutions, Mm-hmm. Uh, social unrest, etc. So, we need to sort of work out how we manage our way through those things, where you know the economy and the way it works and those te- technological changes are are the slave of the you know the outcomes for people rather than the other way around. And I, I'm a bit of a I have a bit of a view that you know what's going on in American politics at the moment around Donald Trump's popularity, etc., has been driven by those sort of technological changes being managed very poorly mm-hmm. and a significant, um, a significant, uh, you know, not a majority, but a significant minority of people uh, being badly affected by changes in globalisation and technology and manufacturing and a whole range of things and getting more and more frustrated that they're not being listened to. And, uh I do worry that that sort of uh, what's happening in the political sense right now could be played out across a much larger scale across the world. Okay. And then to 
I guess to close off, what's what's more likely the uh, the a future that's that's pleasant and nice for all, uh, or a future that's going to be uh, more akin to Blade Runner? And we don't like to ask this question, but I think I think I think I I might know where you're going to end up. Uh, well, I, as I as I was thinking, I was talking before. I think I'm sort of coming across as more pessimistic yeah. than I am. If, <laughs> if, if we if we look at so. If you look at, say, you know, something I've been doing in the last few weeks, looking at driverless cars and autonomous vehicles, yep. there are huge benefits to society to the adoption of those technologies. Um, you know, we can cars are only used four to six percent of their life, so we can increase we can increase the utilisation of those vehicles to reduce the material input into that. Um, the studies seem to be showing that we can reduce, uh, you know. M- Mortalities from car crashes by 90%, and then that feeds through into trauma and, you know, um, not just uh, physical trauma but emotional trauma for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means we can shift huge amounts of capital away from trauma hospitals and supporting people who have been hurt and damaged in that way into more productive. So there's a whole range of absolutely strongly positive things about the future. Uh, I just a little bit concerned that unless we manage those in a social way that works for everybody, we can actually, it's quite easy to see some negative uh, futures in that. I don't, uh, Blade Runner, I wouldn't go, wouldn't go that far, but I think if we end up, unless we end up with a more collaborative, which almost sounds socialist, I'm sure to an American audience, um, we will end up in a situation where there's too many haves and too many have-nots. And uh, I can't remember his name, but it was the guy from the uh, Rocky Man Institute said that, you know, uh, the economy makes a, a, a great uh, servant but a terrible master. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to rethink about how some of those things work. I uh, I had dinner with a group of Americans in uh, Rhode Island last year uh, The the day when Malcolm Turnbull, who's now our Prime Minister, rolled, you know, uh, contested against the previous Prime Minister and was elected by his party and therefore became Prime Minister here. And I was asked, because they were a sort of politically active, interested group, and they said, oh, what's this guy Malcolm Turnbull like? And I said, oh, well, he's been a journalist and a lawyer and a merchant banker and he was in IT, he was in Aussie email, et cetera, and he's probably worth a quarter of a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. But he makes a lot of speeches about how lots of people worked harder than he has and have been you know, less fortunate, that he built his fortune on the back of public goods in terms of you know education, uh, rule of law, you know, a whole range of things like that, and that people who uh, do well out of society for those reasons have a absolute obligation to contribute back and make a contribution to the rest of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, the universal response from that group of Americans who I would describe as university-educated uh, left-leaning Democratic Democrats was, oh, anybody that said those sort of things here would be regarded as a communist, whether they were worth a quarter of a billion dollars <laughs> or not. Um, so, you know, I think the American microcosm is interesting from that point of view because I think there's a, you know, that anything that's seen as sort of a collaborative, social sort of good thing is almost viewed through that lens. And... I think we have to rethink through some of our political ideologies to match up with what's going on with the 
the changes that will be economic realities. So I'm sorry if I've been less uh, rosy and uh, positive than you may have thought in terms of starting off. I've been less rosy and positive than I thought when I started off as well. So well, I mean, it's it's nice. so we've we've had we've had some uh, we've had some jolly folks on. We've had some uh, we've had some uh, real pessimists. So you're I think you you came right down in the middle. I think it's the the mission here is to is to sort of counter all of the visions of the future where everyone is everyone is a uh everyone's out for themselves etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think you uh, i think you addressed quite a few of the points uh that make us think that it's going to be okay i guess yeah i, I i'm i'm generally positive about those things i sure. just think we have some significant challenges and that you know my experience with uh working with people and organizations is that they're so tied up with the trying to deal with their present problems they don't necessarily rise you know raise their heads up to look at these things or think about mm-hmm. these things um so yeah I, I just think we all need to make sort of some contribution to thinking about these things differently paul uh where can people find uh information uh about what you're working on uh so i'm on uh on twitter at i'm at futurist paul mm-hmm and our website, which has got a couple of a scanning blog, but also a, a writing blog, is emergentfutures.com. Emergentfutures.com. All right. Thank you very much for joining us on Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. Thanks for listening. Thanks, John. Yeah, perfect. Perfect.